The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. What happens to soldiers after they have fought in a war? The public often holds conflicting images of veterans. On the one hand, they are heroes who annually parade their valor and receive the thanks of a grateful nation. But on the other hand, there's the stereotype of a damaged individual, physically or psychologically, unable to compete in the free market and forced to rely on private charity or the grudging generosity of an increasingly forgetful and even hostile society. We'll look today at how white Civil War veterans fared in the post-war decades in conversation with James Martin, author of Sing Not War, The Lives of Union and Confederate Veterans in Gilded Age America. That's today on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Do you know that digestive problems, ADHD, and chronic pain can be treated naturally? In fact, most health problems can be treated using integrative and alternative medicine. Find out about cancer prevention and managing diabetes. Learn how to use common herbs and spices to treat a variety of conditions. For the sake of your good health, tune in to Natural Solutions with your host, Dr. Sean Palmer. Broadcasting live every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you today from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina but not speaking for the university or the UNC system or the state government or anyone else just for myself, although using a state telephone, which I learned in today's manager's uh, training session may possibly be unethical if it were for personal use, but of course this is educational, so we're okay. Uh, But no, speaking only for myself, and I know our guest will do the same, it is a uh, hot and uh, sort of overcast Friday afternoon in June of 2011. It is a relief to be here out of the the day-long manager's training session, 8 a.m. till till 2.30, hearing about the differences and how to conduct exit interviews for SPA versus EPA personnel. Um, If I did not have a copy of our guest's book uh, opened in front of me like a, a student sneaking a look at a comic book, or today I guess it would be a uh, uh, an electronic device of some kind, so I could actually be reading about Union veterans instead of paying attention to this incredible uh, uh, tedium. I would, I, I, I might not be here right now, but but I am. I, I was able to read and get something productive done instead uh, to get ready for today's show, which is the last of the season. 
We'll be taking the annual summer hiatus after today and rejoining you all on September 2nd. So uh, before we forget, I want to wish everyone a, a good summer and especially uh, wish to the uh, Civil War Talk Radio's uh, number one fan, uh, my mother, a happy 90th birthday this summer, July 28th. Uh, we'll be there, Mom, to see you, but uh, happy birthday. And uh, I'm, I'm sure everyone at Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters and the fans would, would join me in that. Well, uh, this summer also will feature some uh, appearances if you're around Gettysburg next week on, July, on June 27th or 28th for the Civil War Institute. Uh, stop by and say hello. I'll be uh, greeting people on behalf of Civil War Talk Radio. On August 10th, I'll be at the 5th Maine Regiment Museum in Peaks Island, Maine, in the harbor of Portland, uh, talking about Abraham Lincoln, and uh, hope to, uh, to see some of you there. This all presumes that I make it through the weekend ahead. Some listeners have asked, what's up with the Greenville Stars? Why are we not hearing about uh, America's most interesting uh, girls' youth soccer team this season? And, of course, the answer is that uh, my coaching career there uh, has come to an end with the graduation of my older daughter to college and my younger daughter playing high school uh, soccer and running cross-country instead of travel soccer. But not quite, because tomorrow is a big-time tournament for the Greenville Stars, not youth team, but the, the varsity team, the over-50 men's team, uh, which I do not coach but actually play on. You'll have to wait till September 2nd to hear the results of this weekend's tournament, although if it turns out like most of our tournaments, you will never hear the results of, of what happened. Uh, but assuming I make it through four games in two days, uh, I'll be back to share things with you. Uh, a few more housekeeping items. Don't forget to look at the single best uh, site on the entire internet, uh, www.impedimentsofwar.org. It's the Civil War Talk Radio Companion website. Uh, this past week, uh, talk, Civil War Talk Radio's number one fan, uh, already referred to, my mother took a look at that website for the first time and reported it is fabulous. It's got everything there about past shows. It's easy to use. Uh, my mom actually leads me on the cutting edge of technology. She was the one who insisted I get a webcam and, and Skype so we could communicate. Uh, she had that before I did. But uh, if she tells you the website is good, uh, listeners, then uh, it's really good. It's, it's very cool. And thanks, of course, to Mark Gaffney, who runs the site, and who this week, uh, Mark reports, has added uh, Civil War Talk Radio back to iTunes. Uh, it is now available through iTunes Podcasts. Uh, there's a button for it on the, uh, the, the Impediments of War webpage. Uh, and there's also a, a, button, a button for the RSS feed so you can subscribe once again. This was the case many years ago before the uh, overlords at World Talk Radio changed ownership and did different things and changed the website. Uh, we once again have an RSS button, and you can... Uh, subscribe and listen uh, in, in all kinds of ways that I don't understand, uh, but I, I know some people have asked about that. And of course, there's always the donation button there. Uh, donate to CivilWarTR at AOL.com. Uh, send in your $20 contribution. I'll be happy to send you a book, uh, one of my books of your choice. 
and that money will help support the website. And uh, I'm very happy to share that uh, with Mark Gaffney so that he can pay the actual out-of-pocket fees for impedimentsofwar.org, which I think is really a, a useful site for us all. So that's where we are as we enter our last uh, conversation of the summer. And uh, we have as our guest today, Dr. James Martin, who's the chair of the history department at Marquette University and author of the book uh, described earlier. Uh, Dr. Martin, are you there? I'm here. Uh, do you go by James, Jim? Can I? Can we be informal today? Jim. Jim it is, and I'm Jerry, please. Uh, uh, well, thank you for being on the show. My pleasure. You currently uh, chairing your department? Yes. Then, then, Starting uh, a third term in the fall. Well, that is... Uh, uh, I, I don't know if I would uh, accept a nomination for a third term or if I, I would not run if nominated or <laughs> serve if elected. I'm uh, one of the few people you'll meet who likes being department chair. Well, that, well, there's a lot to like about it. Yeah. There, there's a lot of challenge and interest in the job, I have to say. It, it's days like today when it was all bureaucracy all day that uh, I started thinking, what am I doing here? <laughs> but uh, but there is a lot to like about it. That's certainly true. Um, so what? What? Uh, let me just start with a little background. What brought you into the world of uh, writing about the Civil War? Well, you know, I uh, have been thinking about that recently, um, UNC Press has a sesquicentennial blog, and I wrote a little thing for that. And and uh, I've always thought it was because I was a kid during the centennial uh, of the Civil War. And I suppose it's still the case, although the memories I had of movies and books that I read as a you know eight, nine, ten year old actually didn't come out during the centennial. So I had collapsed some years. But anyway, I do think it's because uh, there were a lot of books and and films and TV shows. Um, aimed toward you know that pre 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 adolescent you know group um, and it really captured me. I, I also what I came to realize is that it made me want to be a historian, not a Civil War historian uh, so much. Although civil, I was a Civil War buff as a kid uh, and uh, played Army, uh, you know, like a lot of boys our age um, uh, as a Civil War Army and and I drew pictures and had a Civil War coroner in my room and made my family take me to Gettysburg when I was about 12 years old, but um, I think I just came to appreciate history more than anything else. But I think that's, that there was something, I mean, I'm from South Dakota. Uh, I didn't grow up in a place with any sort of, any sort of Civil War heritage whatsoever. My families um, came to the United States in the 1880s and 1870s, so there's no family connection to the Civil War. Uh, it had to be something about what I was sort of seeing in the culture, I think. And that's an, I, I share that the heritage of not not having a dog in the fight, as it were, of, of descendants or, or ancestors who came here after the war, uh, and have been roughly the same generation as you. And uh, I think a lot of us uh, have that. It's not uncommon here. Certainly, I found in North Carolina to talk to people who will identify their their personal history of the war and assume that everyone interested in the war must have such a connection. Oh, absolutely. I think I think that is, uh, again, if you're from the East, especially, and especially from the South, I think, um, why would you care? <laughs> I think it's there. <laughs> but so many uh, of them do care. I think it's fascinating. Now, you, you wrote uh, a book about, the, about children during the Civil War, but your current book, which I, I really enjoyed reading this week and wanted to ask you about, uh, deals with the veterans. What, what brought that, that generational change on in your 
your research thoughts? Um, well, literally, it was because I, I live in Milwaukee, and Milwaukee was uh, were one of the first three of the National Soldiers' Homes, the National Home for Disabled Volunteer Soldiers, it was called. Uh, Milwaukee had one of the first three of those established in 18... I guess 1869 is when it opened. And I live about a three-minute drive uh, from uh, these grand old buildings uh, that are just up the hill from the, the, the current VA hospital because the uh, NHDVS is the direct uh, uh, antecedent to the VA. The VA, I think, was organized in 1930 or so, and it took over the, the old Civil War soldier uh, system. And there's one in Norfolk now, and I think there were eight or ten of them altogether, uh, but Dayton, Ohio, Togus, Maine, Milwaukee, Wisconsin had the first ones. Uh, the buildings in Milwaukee are still there. Uh, the big old Maine building uh, sort of looms over our baseball stadium here, uh, and there are about, I think there are about 20 other buildings built between the 1880s and the early uh, 20th century. They're in very bad shape. It was, if you were paying any attention, um, the older buildings were named among the most threatened historic landmarks in America uh, just last week. It was kind of a, hmm. a big thing here. The, the VA, I mean, they're, they're, they, they can't tear them down, but they don't have to keep them up, um, mm-hmm. is my understanding of the law. And they're in pretty bad shape, but they're still there. And, and their being there always attracted me. I've lived here for 25 years. And probably 12 or 15 years ago, um, I thought, well, I'll find out what there is to know about them. There aren't a lot of records for Civil War veterans. Um, when the VA was formed, they tried to centralize all the individual records. They lost a bunch of them um, uh, or, uh, or, or threw a lot of them away, too, I believe. Um, but uh, the librarian at the VA library here in Milwaukee had found, oh, about a decade's worth of hospital records, a big ledger, disciplinary records, you know, a few sort of odds and ends. Uh, and so I, I, I sort of thought of it as my hobby field. You know, I was working in the, the Children's Civil War book, and um, I thought, well, I'll, I'll do a couple of things here. And I, I ended up writing a couple of articles about, well, alcoholism uh, at the home, because that was sort of the theme of the health and disciplinary books uh, that uh, had survived. Uh, and one thing kind of led to another, and I finally decided to do a full-scale book, not just about the homes, although the homes play a very important part of it, uh, but to expand it beyond uh, the homes. And, and so and it's one of those things, you know, I, I, I wrote this book over 15 years, but really it was the last four or five years where I did most of the work. But So it's really just a, a matter of geography uh, and being interested in this uh, kind of magical place uh, here in Milwaukee, you, you go up there, there's a, there's a cemetery with 10,000 graves uh, kind of surrounding it. Uh, and because it's wow. kind of up over the freeway, you're kind of separate from the city uh, in a way. And, and so it really kind of captivated me. When uh, the Lincoln Summer Cottage, the, uh, the Lincoln Anderson Cottage on the grounds of the Soldiers' Home in Washington, D.C., has has a little bit of that effect where it's on the heights above the city and you do feel separated when you're there. And as I was reading your book, I, I wondered if if that soldier's home, was that part of the same system? I know it predated the Civil War. That was you know, professional in, soldiers. Um, yeah, for the regular you know, I think you had to be in the Army for 30 years. or I mean, there was some rule like that. Mm-hmm. So, so that was for sort of old Army regular uh, soldiers. I, I think it... No, 1851 or two. Uh, I, I, I didn't really do any research on that because it didn't, mm-hmm. wasn't really 
my thing, you know. But right. uh, uh, it, it's a separate thing. It has some of the same conditions um, and problems that these these uh, these uh, the other homes have, but it was really for a very different sort of people. Well, I mean, you're, that makes sense that the, the homes you're writing about have the word volunteer in the title, and you're very clear in your book that you're writing about a certain about the volunteers and right. the, the, their their reentry into civilian society. Let me ask, uh, you mentioned alcoholism being one of the, the entrees for you into this topic. Uh, the, the stereotype of the veteran uh, that anyone in America today is familiar with uh, it would be the stereotype of the Vietnam veteran, the uh, victim of post-traumatic stress disorder, maybe some psychological problems, maybe drug addicted, uh, you know, 20 years ago, certainly even possibly homeless. Uh, this was the, it's a very negative and, and, and unfortunate image. You point out in the book that that, of course, is not the majority of, of uh, Vietnam veterans uh, any more than the, the drunk or homeless Union veteran was typical. But you write about some pretty horrific individual stories in, in your book. Is, is there something to be learned from these extreme cases? Well, you know, I really struggled with how to organize the book and, and what exactly I was trying to do. Uh, it changed a lot over the mm-hmm. 10 or 12 years that I was working on it. Um, even the last two or three years, I, I eliminated entire groups and brought in others, and, you know, it, was, uh, it, it took a lot of forms before it was all done. Um, and, and what I ended up thinking, what I believe I did, was to kind of look at the margins. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty easy to say uh, the truth in almost any war that most men do come back uh, and adjust fairly well. Um, I'm not a veteran. I, was, I haven't been in combat, much less in the Army. Um, and uh, I can't put myself in their place. But most, most uh, but I, know a lot, I know a lot of veterans, certainly my father's generation and, and uh, guys I grew up around um, seem to have adjusted just fine, you know. Um, but I think there is a spectrum of adjustment, of, of, of uh, adjusting well to this. And so you have the margins, the men that are, that are addicted uh, or homeless or um, have been changed forever uh, with post-traumatic stress. And you have those that seem perfectly normal, but it's not one or the other. It's usually there's a long spectrum there, uh, and you kind of enter that spectrum at various places. Um, I was surprised um, just to see little references to relatively normal guys, you know, that still had uh, some aspect of that trauma popping up in their life. And, and I mean, having grown up in South Dakota, as I said, Laura Ingalls Wilder, you know, was one of the books, you always read her books when you grew up in South Dakota, mm-hmm. uh, because part of the, the, uh, the stories take place there. And, and, uh, and so I was very familiar with them, but I was reading them, I guess, maybe to one of my kids. And in one of the pre-Dakota Territory books, Little House in the Big Woods, really the first one, um, Laura has an uncle. Uh, who still wears his army overcoat. This would have been the, probably the mid-1870s, I mean, a little bit earlier. Uh, and uh, I think it's the father's uh, brother, and he's just not quite right. They just had this very fleeting moment, fleeting reference to him not being right. He was in the army, he came back, he's not quite, you know, uh, what he should be. Uh, and, and I just found that really interesting to pop up in what is really a children's book, uh, and not about the Civil War at all, not about this guy at all, but yet there's a little bit of evidence, this, this, this 
this little glimpse, you know, that the war had an effect on men that seemed perfectly normal. Um, I mean, that, that suggests it must have been a, a cultural, you know, com- commonplace image to, to be able to put it in a book like that without making a big deal out of it. I would think so. I mean, she's writing 50 years later, too, but it's, it's, uh, um, it is an important thing, and, and you don't hear much about it. One of the things that, I guess it wasn't really frustrating, but it, it's, uh, it's worth commenting on, is that most veterans don't write about being a veteran. They write about being soldiers. You know, there are un, untold thousands, you know, of, of published and unpublished memoirs and um, reminiscences and, and uh, accounts, you know, of, of being a soldier. Hardly anyone writes about being a veteran. Even that, though that makes it, it's a challenge when, when the, the sources are like that. We're going to take a short break and come right back, talk more about the veterans' experience and how they were perceived. We're talking today with James Martin, author of Sing Not War, uh, about Union and Confederate veterans. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and we'll be back with more Civil War Talk Radio. don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop take world talk radio on the go and listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market if you're looking for answers and solutions you don't have to look to expensive treatments consultations and methods all you have to do is listen to your connections Every week, the Dr. Melanie Show will teach you how to do just that. Dr. Melanie Barton will share her gifts and talents and teach you to do the same. And in doing so, find the solutions to the issues in your life that you truly need. You'll learn about holistic and practical health in six key areas. Discover the Dr. Melanie Show, Thursdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Holistic healing has been around for over 5,000 years. The basic concept is that of treating the whole person and encouraging a healthy way of living in harmony with nature and the core self. Every week, take some time out for Holistic Healing Moment with host Elizabeth Ami. What is out there and how does it help on the transformational path of healing body, mind, and spirit? No matter where you are on your path, there will be a topic that will speak just to you. Tune in to Holistic Healing Moment, Mondays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific, on World Talk Radio Variety. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with James Martin, and we're talking about Civil War veterans and the world they reentered. He's written Sing Not War, The Lives of Union and Confederate Veterans in Gilded Age America. It's from the University of North Carolina Press, and uh, looks at uh, the way veterans fit back into civil society after the war, north and south, more north and south, but some of each. And uh, Jim, we left off, you were mentioning the difficulty in finding sources, but uh, I want to ask you about a specific moment. Uh, It always makes sense to start at the beginning. Uh, The soldiers wrote about their experience in the war, and it seems like a fair number of them wrote about the the immediate aftermath of the war, the homecoming. 
again, those of us uh, you know, who remember the aftermath of, of Vietnam uh, remember how there were, there were no parades uh, until the 1980s, a, a decade or more later, then uh, there were a number of parades organized around the country. But the soldiers came home with no fanfare originally. What did the, the Civil War veterans come home to in 1865? Well, it depends on when they were actually mustered out. It took several months for the Army to muster out. Um, and th- th- there is this myriad of experiences. The differences between the northern and southern soldiers are in some ways really obvious. Um, interestingly, the, the Confederates got home a lot sooner. They were, they, they were tended to be closer to home. And, you know, their, their army had ceased to exist, so they just kind of went home. Um, uh, I found the most, the most dramatic um, uh, instances of homecomings uh, were the Confederate soldiers who um, maintain unit cohesion sometimes. I don't want to suggest that most of them did. But because units were recruited from the same towns and counties and areas, uh, the survivors would be going in the same direction anyway. So they often went in groups. Uh, but some of them actually maintain uh, as, as big as you know, battalion-sized units. We had a very few of them. Uh, cavalry units could keep their horses. Uh, the famous terms of surrender uh, in the Eastern um, Theater and, and in North Carolina, uh, officers had their sidearms. Uh, and, and so they banded together. And uh, the, the great source... Four uh, Southern veterans um, are the, 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 the Tennessee Veterans Questionnaires, which um, I hadn't really looked at much before. I did the research with it. They're wonderful. Uh, these Tell are, us about that. These are questionnaires sent out. There are two batches. I think they're, I'm, I'm forgetting now exactly when they were, 1905 or so, in 1915 or 1920. There's two separate groups of them. And they were mainly about their lives before and after the war, sort of economic um, lies, where they're from, the battles they fought in, and so forth. But there were four or five questions that were tailor-made for this first chapter because it asked, tell us any interesting you know, incidents on your way home. What did you do when you first got home? Um, what were the big challenges you know, to, to returning? And so this is, uh, it's just an incredibly rich, and they're published. They're, they're like, it's uh, six volumes, seven volumes. Um, uh, published uh, uh, responses to these questions. Uh, and so the, the, the Tennessee Confederates had to come through East Tennessee, which many of your listeners probably know was heavily Unionist uh, uh, before and during the war. And all of a sudden, the shoes on the foot here, and, and, and so the Confederates are being persecuted, and they're being attacked. There were guerrilla units and bushwhackers that stopped them and tried to disarm them. Um, uh, there's a bridge at a near a place called Strawberry Plains, which, I, which, again, I'd never heard of, but it's in eastern Tennessee, uh, and that was a real bottleneck for Confederate troops going home. And some of them swam the river instead of going across the bridge. Uh, there were a few confrontations uh, between groups of Confederates and these uh, so-called bushwhackers, uh, unionists, uh, and it's just very dramatic homecomings for them. You know, so they have to kind of run a gauntlet just to get there. Um, that is not the case for most Confederates, but uh, you know, they they wander home. They get there in a few weeks, uh, and what if there is sort of a a single answer that they they wanted to give is that I got home. I started doing a man's job, and I helped my family recover from the war. That, that's this one that, that 
you know, 40, 50 years later, they're very proud of this. Uh, a few of them have really funny answers that, uh, you know, they're young ones especially, if they're 19, 20, 21, uh, one, of them, uh, one of them's father said, you have a year from right now, go have some fun. And so he did hmm. uh, and came back in a year and, and went, went to work. Uh, and, and so it, it, it's, I think the Confederate homecomings are kind of what you'd expect. It's pretty hard. Um, it's sad. Uh, people are happy to see you know, their men. Some of the, the, some of the civilians that write about this are a little wistful about this. Boy, it wouldn't be great if they were coming home victorious instead of losers. Uh, and I don't know how much of that they communicated to the soldiers, but uh, uh, there's nothing too surprising there. Union soldiers, uh, I mean, some must have died right away. Uh, and so there was a, just a raft of homecomings during the summer of 1865. Uh, and it goes well into the fall. The Army demobilizes very, very quickly. Uh, and the first units coming home sometimes surprised the towns. Uh, communication wasn't great then. Um, they're coming home kind of an ad hoc, you know, on, on you know, cattle cars and freight cars and they're marching partway. And, you know, they're sort of catching a ride where, where they can. Um, they often are mustered out far from home and they have to make their own way there. Uh, they're not sent home and then mustered out for the most part. Um, but it's, it really varies. If, if the town's ready, there's a big parade during that, the first part of that summer. By the fall, uh, you're seeing that, uh, you know, this, this later regiments, they're often regiments that had mustered in later. They hadn't seen as much service. They weren't seen as, you know, the long-serving soldiers, uh, I think, sometimes. Uh, and uh, and so they aren't received quite as enthusiastically. They're just kind of ignored. Uh, sort of a celebration fatigue sets in. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and again, it's partly because units are recruited from the same place, and so uh, if you're in a city especially, several regiments would have come from that town, that city. Uh, and uh, really, once the first, second, third ones you know, arrive home, what more can you do? You mentioned the, uh, the the Confederates in their questionnaires that I got back, and I started doing a man's job. And one of the themes that runs through your book uh, continuously is the idea of manhood in the late 19th century. And uh, when I'm when I'm teaching the the survey course, the short version, I tell the students that there was. Uh, and not all historians agree necessarily in the details, but there, there was a sense of a manhood crisis, a crisis of masculinity among Americans uh, with the changing of, of the economy where people didn't work with their hands or work in the fields and men did sedentary jobs in offices and uh, couldn't be as violent and as alcoholic and as individualistic as they might have been uh, earlier. The veterans on the one hand, uh, you know, fought in a war, what could be more manly, but a lot of them come home broken physically, uh, and and uh, the Confederates come home in defeat. So uh, I, I guess uh, the manhood thing could cut both ways. How, is that a fair uh, entree into that topic for you? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think the Confederates are, are less complicated uh, because there's a great deal of sympathy for them. Um, uh, they, um, they, they might have been broken, uh, they lost, uh, and yet as the lost cause of philosophy, this notion of uh, this glorious past, uh, the war was fought to maintain a way of life, and, and, uh, uh, and uh, anyone who supported that uh, is a hero. It, it's just a very uh, 
black and white, not pardon the pun, sort of reference to what had been and what was no longer. Uh, and so if you were a part of that, you, you were all sort of automatically raised above you know, other men. And then most white men in the South were in the Army. I mean, it was, it was really the main experience of people in that cohort of that generation. Uh, in the North, I mean, certainly most military-age men um, served in the Army. There's some statistic that I cite in there. I think of men born in 1843, like the 18-year-olds in, in 1861. 80% of them end up in the Union Army. Uh, that's pretty, pretty high mobilization. And yet, there are other, in other you know, slightly older cohorts and, and younger ones, of course, there are different ways of serving in the war, different experiences. Uh, it's, it's, I think it's a little under half of all military-age men overall, and that means you know, 18 to 45 or so uh, actually serve in the, in the military. And so they have regular jobs, they go west, they work in the sanitary commission, they... That there are other things that men do to be men besides serving the army, uh, and so that complicates things in, in, in the north. And again, they won, um, and so certainly some some of them were disabled. Certainly, uh, some had, had a harder time recovering, but the economy was booming. Um, there was no destruction in the south. Their families weren't lost. You know, their farms should have been intact. Um, uh, and so, if Union veterans uh, failed to come back and, and kind of make it, you know, in civilian society, it was kind of their fault. Uh, and when you saw then beggars on the streets, which city newspapers talk about a lot in the years after the Civil War, uh, disabled and non-disabled veterans. Um, when you see veterans that just don't seem, and it's kind of a theme in some short stories and representations of veterans, they just don't seem to have that fire. They don't have that ambition. Uh, that a Gilded Age man was supposed to have. Uh, I mean, manhood, as he sort of let off with this idea of changing manhood, at least, if not a crisis, it certainly is uh, a change in how you express your masculinity, how you represent other men, you know, in a way. Uh, and it was through business uh, and ambition and heart, and, and not just kind of nose of the grindstone, hard work as being an entrepreneur, uh, kind of being a flashy success. Uh, as opposed to following orders, uh, as opposed to um, just being, you know, quietly successful. Uh, and so even if a man had served well in the military, um, well, he's a drone. He's a cog in a machine. That's not a way to be a man anymore in the Gilded Age. Uh, and so they're, they're kind of stuck between two definitions. They thought facing up to Confederate bullets, you know, was the, the height of being a man. Well, perhaps, but, you know, anybody can do that. You're being forced to do that. You're, again, you're just sort of a, uh, a, a tool of this larger um, operation. A real man is independent. A real man makes his own choices. A real man uh, makes something permanent, you know, uh, in the economy for his family. Uh, and so I think they were caught off guard by that, and they really resent it. One of the common... Um, complaints by soldiers, whether they're well-adjusted or not, uh, is that, you know, people stay at home and got the good jobs and got a leg up on us. We came home and we were already behind and we can never catch up. Wow. So it, it really is a different, uh, you know, two different ideas of what, what constitutes success and the, uh, 
A couple weeks ago, uh, Gregory Irwin was on the show, and we were talking about uh, his book on, on Custer as a Civil War general. And he pointed out that Custer had a great, uh, was very popular with his men during the war, but was very unpopular with his men in the 1870s, back in the regular army. And part of it was that the men who served in the regular army in the 1870s are back to the, the lifers, the regulars. Uh, and uh, military experience uh, is, is marginalized again. It's not something most people do. It, it's the last resort, really. Oh, sure. Uh, is to join the army by the 1870s. So that that heroism that, that attaches to military service during the war uh, fades awfully quickly uh, for uh, for for uh, a whole generation and and now these men are stuck yeah and you know the, the united states was actually kind of anti-military before the war um there was this um by the mid 1850s the rise of the private militia companies that uh you hear about, and certainly in the South or military academies, but especially the North, that it was, it was military did not have a high, was not highly esteemed uh, by by most Americans. Um, in this is where the, my work in children also actually shows up. There's, there's hardly anything about the military in children's school books hmm. uh, and, and and fiction and so forth. It's, it's, I wouldn't call it pacifist, but um, it just is. They just don't care. Uh, it's not something that is admirable. Um, Military service in the service of the Union and later on emancipation, uh, or in the South, you know, to protect uh, the country and, and in some circles to defend slavery, you know, um, became admirable during that time. Uh, and in the South, I think that martial quality remained uh, mm-hmm. more admirable, you know, after the war. In the North, not so much. I mean, especially. Um, I mean, the North kind of embraces this notion that it was industry that won the war, not the men. These massive armies, the economy massively expanded, uh, industry seemed to take off. Uh, it becomes, I mean, it is a modern war in many ways, for Northerners at least. Uh, and I think you know, a modern war eliminates that individual responsibility, individual accomplishment. Uh, it was the country that won the war, not these men. Now, the rhetoric on Memorial Day will talk about bravery and valor and things like this. I'm not sure that's really a year-round <laughs> attitude. Uh-huh. Uh, and, um, and the men notice that. Uh, and I think one reason that there are so many soldiers' newspapers uh, after the war um, and so many thousands of memoirs, uh, and I make a point in the book, uh, uh, all the states... Uh, virtually all the northern states, and a lot of the southern ones too, I guess, published rosters of all the regiments. Uh, and there were official histories of regiments being published. Uh, everyone wanted to tell their story. They wanted to make sure people didn't forget them. And so they just seen their name on the list, you know, with your little bit of a service record, uh, was very important to them because I don't think that is how they believed society was seeing, you know, that, that victorious army. You know, last week, uh, Robert Hunt was on the show, who's written about the Army of the Cumberland Veterans, and oh, right. he wrote, yeah. wrote a book entirely based on their memoirs and regimental histories uh, to make the point of how they tried to construct their own history in the 1880s and 1890s. Uh, and 
it made, made to, to some extent the same point that they they were determined to craft their own history because society was not doing it necessarily the way they saw it being done. They, uh, he argues that they were objecting uh, to some extent to the reconciliationist rhetoric of the 1890s, and they were determined to maintain that they had fought for a cause, not not just uh, fought a good fight, but they had fought uh, for a good cause as well. Did you see some of that? In, in yeah, your... I did, and and I wouldn't say that. Um, I wouldn't say that veterans are anti-reconciliation, but there are certainly, as a whole, at least, there are significant pockets uh, of anti-Southern rhetoric that continue especially when certain things happen. The Confederate flag drive union, drive union, drive union veterans crazy. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so any time that they go to the South or um, there's a reference to the flag and so forth, uh, they, they get a little irrational, not irrational, but I mean they, they get very upset about the Confederate flag still being allowed to fly in the 1880s and 90s. Um, as, long as, as long as they think just about soldiers' lives, reconciliation really is what they're all about. It's a shared experience, shared hardship. There's nobody else in the world knows what we experience except each other's soldiers, whether Union or Confederate. And so there's that, that fellowship you know, that, that that experience had, had created. But there, nevertheless, are still um, some hot points, uh, often to do with very symbolic things like the flag, uh, monuments on, on battlefields, uh, um, I, I know some Union veterans uh, were kind of upset when the first battlefield uh, to be really restored and 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 uh, and uh, created in the way that a modern person would see it, you know, with the markers and the maps and so forth, was Chickamauga, uh, which is like one of the worst defeats of the Union Army, uh, and uh, and they thought that was ironic and unfair. Uh, that, that that the only way you get the Confederates on board, I think they they believed was to, to give them a battlefield they'd won on uh, to, to really have that those markers go up and, and that memory created. Wow. So when we have uh, disputes today over the Confederate flag, it's nothing new. It, it uh, has been a, a symbol that, that got people emotionally aroused uh, even 100 years ago. We're going to take another short break and come back in just a minute. Today we're talking with Jim Martin. He's the author of Sing Not War. It's about war veterans and their reintroduction to society in the Gilded Age. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and we'll be back with more Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Holistic healing has been around for over 5,000 years. The basic concept is that of treating the whole person and encouraging a healthy way of living in harmony with nature and the core self. Every week, take some time out for Holistic Healing Moment with host Elizabeth Ami. What is out there and how does it help on the transformational path of healing body, mind, and spirit? No matter where you are on your path, there will be a topic that will speak just to you. Tune in to Holistic Healing Moment, Mondays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific, on World Talk Radio Variety. 
No family can survive on two incomes anymore, let alone one. If you are supplementing your family's income working from home, then tune into The Cash Flow Show, Direct Sales Radio. Host Deb Vixler brings you sales tips, lead generation systems, and best business practices that guarantee direct sales success. Whether you're looking for a little extra cash or a career change, The Cash Flow Show, Direct Sales Radio, will give you proven systems that will work in your home business. The Cash Flow Show. Every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on World Talk Radio Variety. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Professor James Martin. He's the author of Sing Not War. It's uh, about the lives of Union and Confederate veterans in Gilded Age America. The title and the chapter headings come from Walt Whitman's poetry. And uh, it's a very interesting look at how veterans were perceived after the war. Uh, Once the parades were over, uh, what happened? How did they fit back into society? What did people think of them? What did they think of themselves? Um, uh, Jim, as I was reading your book, I recalled the introduction to one of Alistair Horne's books on French military history, where he describes the parade of the French World War I veterans uh, down the Champs-Élysées. Uh, and in the front rank are les mutilés, the, the wounded, the armless and legless, uh, being wheeled along or marching along. And he says they're, they're the very embodiment of, of glory, of la gloire for the, for the French people, the French military, uh, those who lost limbs in combat represent something very powerful there. The the disabled, the, the amputees uh, are, are common among Union and Confederate veterans, uh, very common, and you, you, but they play a different social role. They're not, uh, they're certainly not featured as such in American society. What, well, it, it it's a complex uh, picture you, you you present. Where where do they fit in? Well, I think the the ones that fit in the best are the amputees in a way because it's very it's so clear they're disabled. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it's really quite common. I I, I, this, I think the number is fifty thousand amputees survived the war, uh, and so you know everyone has seen someone. You know, uh, I grew up in a farming town, and, and there are several guys that lost fingers in you know accidents and on the farm. And that was sort of a representative of the kind of machinery being used then. And, and, and I think the same could be said. Um, I mean, union veterans, there, there are enough politicians and well-known people missing an arm or a leg uh, that they're not unfamiliar, you know, sites. And uh, it's, it's almost a stereotype, you know, of, of a veteran. The complication comes with men whose disability is less clear-cut. Uh, and... Uh, it, it, it's something that it's that, that, that is broken down physically. It's a like chronic dysentery, uh, which is a very common uh, complaint, even you know, 20, 30 years after the war, or malaria, or you know the kinds of diseases that don't necessarily kill you. They wear you down. It's where that lack of ambition seems to come from. Uh, when people see them, they just can't hold a good job. They they are they're they're tired all the time. Uh, they're being left behind. Uh, men who you know, have not little as a limb, but have lost some of the function of one arm. Um, 
it's not apparent to everybody, if you see them on the street, that they're really disabled. Uh, but they clearly are. They can't do their old job. Um, and, and so it becomes complicated. What really makes it complicated are the programs set in place for them. Um, the soldiers' homes that the federal government set up, the national homes that we mentioned earlier, and then every state set up a soldier's home too, and in the South as well. They were smaller in the South for the most part. But uh, they were intended to be for men who were permanently disabled uh, and couldn't take care of themselves. And they're not particularly controversial as such, although the homes become kind of controversial within the towns which they live. Again, I, I live five minutes away from, or less from, the, the home here in Milwaukee. And, and while it was the, the Civil War soldier's home, it was kind of in a suburb. I mean, it's not really, wasn't really in the city at the time. It was kind of in the outskirts. Uh, but there were 30 bars right along the, the roads leading up to the home, and the behavior of the veterans was really kind of bad, and they'd end up in jail, end up in the poorhouse, you know, they'd get kicked out of the home, end up in a county institution. Uh, and and so uh, the, the areas around the homes and the behavior of the inmates seemed to suggest that they weren't particularly worthy recipients of this government aid. And again, the soldiers' homes are really the first federal institution uh, for any group that provided this kind of health, you know, health care. Uh, it's really a, a, it is, a, I guess, the antecedent of the better VA, but also of any federal program uh, health-wise. Uh, the system that really complicated, I think, attitudes about veterans and disabled veterans uh, were the pension, was the pension system that was created. And that's, I want to ask you about that. With health care, of course, we've we've solved that, and there's no more partisan bickering over national health care anymore. Thank God that finally happened, uh, yes. I, <laughs> uh, but, but the pension system, uh, it, exactly. You, you make the point that in 1893, uh, pensions for soldiers consumed 40% of the federal budget, which is almost double what Social Security uh, represents as a portion, at least, at least 100 years later. Yeah. Uh, so this was a huge uh, program, if, if I call it an entitlement program, that already puts it in a partisan basis, uh, a, a huge program of federal contributions to individuals, and the, the partisanship over this, over whether these were deserving heroes who had earned uh, this, this drop of, of gratitude from a nation, or if these were just old uh, you know, suckers at the public teat who were, were taking advantage of a few years of brief service to, to drain the federal treasury the rest of their lives. Two very different views of what veterans are all about. Absolutely, and, and I think what uh, complicates is that the standards for what disability meant changed over time. Uh, early on, it really was. You had to show that you had suffered a, a, a disability in the service of your country, or a wound or a disease, mm-hmm. that uh, kept you from um, performing your, uh, um, the job that you had been trained to do, that you grew up, you know, that you had done before the war. Over time, that expanded, and ultimately, old age became a disability. So it wasn't that you were a veteran disabled in the military, you were a veteran who had become disabled. Uh, and so... That, and that, really that would be all the veterans by age. Yeah, and need became less important, too. It really did, it had nothing to do with need. It was about whether or not you were disabled. Uh, and so, you know, it's hundreds of thousands of guys on the, on the pension rolls 
uh, by that time. And it is an entitlement. It is, it's exactly how they are talking about it, uh, that we are entitled to this. Uh, they said no one, uh, I mean, there, there, there's some veterans who oppose this, but you know, there'd be this train, well, you're a volunteer. You know, sometimes you were paid bounties. Well, in fact, having been paid a bounty to enlist supports the notion, I think, by veterans, they, they would argue this, that then we should also, we also deserve a, a pension. Um, the bounty, in fact, made it into a transaction. Now, we were patriotic. We fought hard for you. We weren't, we weren't doing this for the money, but we did it. And uh, so uh, the country really can never repay us uh, for what we sacrificed, whether it's an arm or just three or four of the best years of our lives or whatever. Um, and, and, and that's what makes it so complicated and is that the, the roles constantly expanded. Um, the Republican Party was very much in favor uh, because it benefited them politically to expand pensions. Um, the GAR, the Grand Army of the Republic, the main union veterans group, and there were many others as well, but this, this was the main one, uh, was officially nonpartisan, but it was really an auxiliary of the Republican Party for the most part, and pensions was always a part of what they were doing, um, what they were, they were promoting. Uh, and so veterans really, I think, as a whole, get painted in a relatively negative light because of the pension controversy. Well, that really struck me, the, the anti-veteran rhetoric that you, you cite in the book, uh, uh, where, where editorialists are just writing about de- veterans in the harshest language, and, and the Democrats who are opposed to them, uh, or opposed to the pension, uh, and, and then individuals that you quote saying, oh, it'll be good and all the veterans are dead. I was uh, amazed, I, that was my favorite quote, you know, when I came across that just, it was just stunning that, you, that, that they would say this out loud. And that was like in the 1880s, I think, if I'm not mistaken. So these guys are, you know, 45 years old that they're talking about. It, it was remarkable. And it, it again, it, this echoes so much of, of contemporary politics. As I was reading this, uh, Cleveland, Grover Cleveland, who in 1887 vetoes uh, a pension bill, and also, uh, to, to touch another hot button, wants to return captured Confederate flags to so- southern states, uh, is a Democrat and is, is opposed on both those points by the veterans, most of whom are Republicans. And uh, Cleveland himself was, was not a veteran. He had hired a substitute. And immediately this, this calls to mind uh, the issues over more recent politician service over uh, Clinton, whether he, you know, not serving in Vietnam or, or Bush serving the National Guard rather than in combat or uh, John Kerry and his swift boat. Uh, no matter how, almost no matter what one does, somebody will criticize it in terms of military service, but the line was brightly drawn in the 1880s. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and um, one of the soldiers' newspapers dug up the guy who'd been the substitute for Cleveland, uh, who was supposedly living in, a, in an almshouse someplace, you know, and he hadn't even paid everything he was supposed to be paid by the Cleveland family. You know, it was, yeah. it was sort of an illiterate immigrant or something. It was a, a really kind of a sad sack who'd been treated badly, you know, by the family and forgotten. Uh, and uh, they loved that story. You have the, the cartoon, the political cartoon that you described from the 88 election where Harrison is marching to the White House and uh, saying to uh, Cleveland, uh, your services won't be needed. There's a substitute going in your place. Yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. It's the other candidate. That was pretty clever. Uh, but really, it, 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 it's more than a political fight. It's a culture war uh, over what... 
you, know, you can only criticize these veterans if you believe that there there's some better thing to be. Um, that this goes back to the manhood issue that that the people who are criticizing them in the 1880s are saying the thing to be today is a is a go getter in uh, an entrepreneur a success in business and these veterans uh, who are are lazy who want a government handout who have lost their gumption by serving in the war uh, are unworthy and uh, it it it's two very different ways to look at at at, at human identity. Yeah, and, and I think what's interesting is that it's parallel with this really um, strong sense of patriotism and, and appreciation on Memorial Day on the 4th of July. Yes, once a year it comes yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, and the veterans notice that, you know, and, and they talk about, you know, it's not just, you know, once a year. Uh, and and uh, you know, I'm not sure they help their cause a lot with their very, very strident, you know, pension <laughs> rhetoric. Um that's not to say the pensions were deserved. I just mean that was they were pretty outrageous in their rhetoric too. Oh, but absolutely, no sides are spared. When people today say, "Oh, look at the how, how far things have fallen," when one only has to read a little history to uh, to see otherwise. Well, Jim, we are at the end of our time, but I really enjoyed the book, uh, and, and I hope our listeners will get a copy of "Sing Not War." And I appreciate you being on the show today. I appreciate you having me. And uh, thanks also to uh, our engineer, Chad, for all his good work this season, and Ruben and everyone else at uh, World Talk Radio. Uh, and thanks to Mark Gaffney, uh, webmaster, for another fine season. And especially, listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. 